0: Matthew 22, Matthew 22, and uh, we're going to, we got down through verse 14, we're going to pick up in verse 15, and uh, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Now the rest of this chapter is going to deal with uh, some folks come up against uh, the Lord and they're going to try to catch him now and they're going to use questions to do it. um, You're going to see in verse 16 the Herodians. That's going to be the political arm of the Pharisees. That's who these are the politics. So their question is going to be of a political nature. They're going to ask about the tribute money. Okay. Then in verse 23 we're going to see the Sadducees, and those guys they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad. You see. So they're going to ask kind of a supernatural, weird questions about when she comes back, who's going to be her husband. And they're the kind of people that ask how many angels fit on the head of a pen, you know, sewing needle and so forth. And how does that camel really go through the eye of a needle? You know, that kind of, you know, really religious and uppity up and supernatural thing. And then you're going to see the Pharisee, in, starting in verse 35, with a lawyer and it's interesting when you talk about the lawyer, uh, he, he's not a... Um, it's sometimes that word scribe is used, and really it's not a lawyer like we think about, you know, the courthouse. It's more of someone who understands the law, the Mosaic law, Israel's law. So he's going to ask about the commandments. And then we're going to see the Lord say... By the way, the Lord answers them at every turn. And then in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. And he doesn't hesitate in answering. And then he's going to ask them a question. And uh, verse 46 is the result. And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. He, we get down there, he he, he is asking them a question that's rather interesting. It's an interesting question, and it causes a dilemma for them because they have erred not knowing the Scriptures. And when he asks them a question, they literally can't answer him. Um, And it's interesting, that issue of being judged of men, where God says, we saw it in our Roman study, where, where God gets put on in Romans three, there where He's put on, the uh, the and he, He's attacked, and men are going to do that. Mankind, when the judgment seat, when the great white throne judgment comes, and all of the sinners, death and hell and all that, give up to go, give up their inhabitants, and they go. He goes to deal with them. They're going to attack God. They're going to come after Him with every excuse and reason in the book. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to answer every one of them. In Job 26, there are six questions that God's going to ask man at the great white throne judgment. They're asking him, and he's going to ask them. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that God's going to be able to answer every one of them, and man will not be able to answer any of his questions. They won't get it. So when we come down through here... Um, by the way, that's why it's always interesting, Dad always said that the Bible is negative toward man and positive toward God, which it is. That's why the world hates the Bible so bad. Why? Because they can never answer the question. And the question that gets asked is, how is a man just before God? Job, Job's ask it. Paul says it. The Philippian jailer looks at Paul and says, "What, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the Bible comes in, doesn't pull any punches, says you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and there he is, and all you got to do is believe him. And man doesn't like that. It goes against the, the human nature. So as we go down through this passage, these are questions that come up, and, and honestly they get kind of abused in religion speak, in religion side of things, But they're also interesting questions that uh, get bannered about from time to time, and uh, it's good to have an answer. All right, 2215. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Again, they can't go and kill him yet because of the crowd, the people. So now they're going to try to get him to disqualify himself. It's just like Satan did in Matthew 4. When Satan tempts the Lord, those three times he goes after him, lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes, attacks him. And again, it's all designed to cause him to disqualify himself from being the Messiah. And that's what they are. Verse 16, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teach us the way of God and truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. They're buttering him up. You know, you know we, we, we know <laughs> that you're good and you always listen. And when you start hearing that, guess, guess what's coming, the but. <laughs> it's just, they're buttering him up. For thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore. You're you're smart. You're good. You're right. God sent you. Tell us, therefore. What thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? And again, the Herodians are there. These are the politicians and notice they ask a question here about government. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But what did the Lord perceive? Their wickedness. The, he, he sees what they're doing. They, uh, they have a total uh, lack of conscience about them. They're just trying to get it. Christ sees it. He reads them. He understands them. He, he's a, he, he comes in. And verse eight, nineteen, uh, verse eighteen. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, "Why tempt ye me? Ye hypocrites!" He 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 looks at them and he's and they say, "Hey, what do you think about paying taxes? You know, is it fair to give tribute to Caesar? Is it right?" And he just he just looks at them and says, "I read your meter real quick here. You know, they think they've got him because if he said yes." Actually, if he said no, then what is he? He's a rebel. He's rebelling against the government. If he said yes, he wouldn't be the Messiah because he would be saying that Caesar ought to be running them. See? So they think they got him. So what does he do? Verse 19, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, who is this image and superscription? they say unto him caesar's then said he unto them render therefore unto caesar the things which are caesar's and unto god the things that are god's when they heard these words they marvelled and left him and went their way now you know you think about the lord looking at them and and he <laughs> he's got such a sarcastic viewpoint of these guys and he just kind of you know it's like you think this question is so complicated don't you know and by the way, a lot of people use this passage to go against paying taxes and so forth, which is not what the Lord is talking about. He says, show me the money. They give him a penny. And he says, whose image is that? Caesar's. Okay, if it has Caesar's image on it, you give it to him. If it's, not, if it's got God's image on it, you give that to him. Now, you have to think about this. Adam was made in the image of God. So if you have the image of God stamped on you, in other words, you're a believer, whether it's little flock or church, the body of Christ, then who do you give yourself to? God, see? You don't give yourself to Caesar. You give yourself to God. And if it has Caesar's image on it, it belongs to who? Him to start with. It's his. So give it back to him. And what happens is verse 21 becomes a classical passage used to demonstrate the separation between church and state. This is not in the Constitution. okay? This is in Matthew 21, 22 here, verse 21. The statement has to do with rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, paying him the tribute money. And that, 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 and that kind of a, of a thing. And then unto God, the things that belong to God. That by the way, what belongs to God, the soul does. The, your conscience does. You're, you're who you are. So really what verse 21 establishes is it establishes the responsibility to the state that we have to pay taxes. But it also establishes a separation of the church from the state as a separate entity. In other words, the things that represent God in the world aren't subject to the state. It deals with who? God. The church deals with with the soul and God and so forth. That belongs over here. Everything else belongs over here. So... A quote, Caesar has no right to touch my conscience. And that's true. Martin Luther said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. And that's what should bind your conscience, not the state. The government hasn't, ha, ha, hasn't any right to enslave your conscience. That's why you have all this stuff going on with the moral questions that keep coming up and government has no right in that in legislating morality it just doesn't work that way and actually it, when they do and they have they're doing it then you see it begin to do what kind of just make a mess of everything because morality is coming from your soul you what what you're learning over here so, you have no right to give your conscience to the state, and uh, you're to give that to God. So, when the Lord says, in his answer, there's more going on to this as well. Notice how he says, who, whose image is on the penny? They said Caesar's, right? And what he's pointing out to, the, he's making them identify their own sin. Because they have put themselves under the bondage of Rome. We're in Leviticus 26. We're in the fifth course of judgment. We're under the times of the Gentiles. And because of that, Christ doesn't take them out from underneath the bondage. He leaves them there. And he, and, uh, he had come and offered them what? The kingdom. What did they do? Rejected it. And he says... If you want to be under the times of the Gentiles and under Gentile dominion and rule and reign, and domin- have at it. You just stay right there. What it belongs to Caesar? And guess what? They belong to Caesar. It's like when, when we get over here in a couple chapters, they're going to say, "Take, we'll have no king but Caesar. They've literally taken the throne that belonged to God and gave it to the Gentiles. And that's what he's reminding them here, And he's making them uh, kind of fess up to, to the condition that they were under Rome's dominion. They were, they haven't kept, you go back to Leviticus 26 back there, and he says anytime you want to get out of this, you have to confess and then obey the commandments. Guess what they weren't doing? Both of those. See, they, John the Baptist, Matthew 3, he, they're down confessing their sins in the Jordan River. He's baptizing them. The, the Pharisees and all of them come. He calls them a generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the... See, they are not doing any of that. And it's interesting, when you get into Leviticus 26 and those five courses, the, uh, you can, uh, the remedy of getting out is given. A national confession... Being water baptized, cleansed, cleaned up, keep the commandments and get back into it. So when when they're looking here and so forth, this is Israel. What does he say? Render, all right, and so forth. And the times of the Gentiles are there. It's in play. Now, you and I today, (laughs) I pay estimated taxes on a quarterly basis. If I don't pay estimated taxes, if I don't pay my tax bill, what's going to happen to me? Well, the government's, the IRS, <laughs> is going to come and make life very interesting for Rick, right? So, we don't, we don't, we're not following this issue. We would follow Romans 13, kind of what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings with the government and so forth. And we would use Romans 13. 13 there but here Christ is making a point and his point is is one you guys are still under you are under Rome's thumb and you've turned yourself completely over to them, and you should have never given them your conscience so there is a separation between church and state even in the word of God and that's what verse 21 is demonstrating okay by the way, one one day, what's he going to do? Come back? White, te- all the kingdoms of this world are going to become his. So, it, and I was studying today, getting ready for Sunday, we were talking about war and so forth. And the greatest influence in the country and in the society is... For you and I to get out there and live as who we are in Christ, preach the gospel, see people get saved, come to the knowledge of the truth, be ambassadors for Christ. And then that begins, we do it locally in our community, and then our community impacts our city. Our city then impacts our state, and the state can then have an impact into and on with the nation. That's the greatest way. It's an inward-outward thing. You're never going to go out there and win the world, but you can win your community and that's where we're at. Okay? So, when he answers them, verse 22, when they had heard these things, they marveled and left him and went their way. They are speechless. And uh, they don't, <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, never mind is right. They have no idea how to answer him. So, verse 23. The same day. Now notice the timing. The same day. So it's it's I try to picture this. It's like, okay, he's in the temple teaching. It's where he's at. So the council, the Sanhedrin, they've had a meeting. You go first, then you go. Then you go. <laughs> and and we're gonna do this the same day. We're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna nail him. And we're, we're going to do it in a bombardment manner. We're not going to give him any time to breathe. You, we're just going to, okay, Herodians, you hit him. And then now the Sadducees, the same day came to him, the Sadducees, and said that, it, that there is no resurrection and ask him. Now, now you go and you're going to ask them. But what we're going to do is we're going to change. The Herodians come and they're asking a political question. The Sadducees are going to come now and they're going to ask about the supernatural. They're going to ask about the resurrection. Now, in verse 23, the same day came to him, the Sadducees would say that there is no resurrection and ask him. The Sadducees are, we would call them the liberals. Uh, They're the modernists. These guys don't believe in angels. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in a lot of the things that the Pharisees, which would be the conservatives, or the fundamentalists, believe in. And again, the saying that I've heard since I was a a little boy, if you ever want to know what the Sadducees believe, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad you see. That's how you can remember that. And uh, again, I've heard that all my life. So, verse 24, saying, Master, Moses said... If a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, that's Deuteronomy 25. Now, there were with us seven brethren. They're going to give an illustration to all this. And the first, when he had married a wife, deceased and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise the second also and the third under the seventh and last of all, the women died also. Therefore, in the resurrection whose wife shall be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, Deuteronomy 25 talks about the issue of if a man is married and dies and doesn't have any children, then his brother is to take his wife and raise up seed for him. It has to do with the Perpetuation of the inheritance and keeping it all in the family, if you will. And they give an illustration of seven boys. Now, whether this illustration is true or not, it's in the book. We'll just let it lie as it is. The first one married a woman. Then he died, no children. The second, down through the seven. So the question then is, is in the resurrection whose wife shall she be? If there is a resurrection... Master, figure this one out, would you? And again, these guys, they like to argue. They like this supernatural hoodly-doo stuff that get into it. So Jesus answers them, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scripture, nor the power of God. Now, there's two things in that verse. He basically calls them Bible blockheads, (laughs) I, that's another one I wrote down from Dad, Bible blockheads, you know. When you don't know the Bible, you don't know anything about the power of God. And when people run around talking about this or that, and they go church after, you know, bouncing around all over the place, what ends up happening is they don't know enough about Scripture to get out of a wet paper bag. That's another one of Dad's, you know. <laughs> They're flowing tonight. The you know, they, they, don't, they don't understand the power of God. And that's the whole thing here is he's talking to the long, black-robed, academic, powerful, collared, religious leaders, the pious ones, the ones that are in the marketplace loving Rabbi, Rabbi. And they are the, the religious le- leaders of Israel that he's talking to, and he doesn't pull any punches with them. Ye do err, not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God. You guys are sitting around philosophically arguing, and you pull a verse out of Moses. By the way, they pulled it out of context when you go back to Deuteronomy 25. And you don't have any idea what it's about you've taken it completely out of its context, out of its dispensational setting, you've you've just been flapping your gums about it, and you guys, you don't even believe in the resurrection, and yet you're asking me a question about the resurrection. You don't understand what they, they walked up to him, they ask him, he just hits them, right between the eyes. (laughs) You err. You don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know the power of God. Now, watch him answer them, verse thirty: For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. If they had known anything about the word of God, they would have known that right there. How, so, by the way, the Sadducees don't believe in the angels either. They they think it's all mystical. Okay. And yet what does he hit with them? He hits them right there about them no about the angels in heaven. Now you gotta remember the angels. Angels are not the winged pictures that we see with wings on it and look like women. Revelation uh twenty-one seventeen, they are men. They have the, the appearance of uh the, they have the appearance of a man the, that is the angel. So the angel you, we, when we get over into the resurrection, we'll see that there are two angels sitting there, and they have the appearance of men, and uh, they don't have wings. They don't. They're not in long white robes, you know, floating around. They show up. They do their job, and they go home. They're ministering spirits, and uh, that's that's real clear here. by the way, verse 31 is real clear about the fact is, is that. By the way, Schofield, the reason he talks here about the angels of God in heaven, and it's important to run to Revelation 21 and see it, is because Schofield's got a note about them being sexless. Okay? And they're not sexless, they're men. (laughs) That's how in Genesis 6, they can come down and be with the daughters of men, of Noah's. But he's got an interesting note in Hebrews 1 about that so you can read that Uh, I would encourage you not to but you can if you need to so again if you go back through the Old Testament you start in Genesis and you're going all the way down through it they know what the angels are but these guys, the religious leaders they had they know nothing about the Old Testament if they had they would have known what was going on they would have believed him they would have been right where they're supposed to be but they're not there So he says, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read? Again, he's just sticking them because they don't know the book at all. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. That was their problem they have, the, those guys, they have no understanding about the word of God. When he says here that he's the God of the, li- of the dead, uh, but of the living, the point there is, is he, God is a God of resurrection. And resurrection fulfills his promises. When he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, what did God promise those guys? eternal life resurrection so he says I'm not the God of the dead I'm the God of the living I'm the god of the resurrection that's the point so in, in if, if you come back to come over to Luke 20 see the comparison uh, here of this uh, the parallel passage sorry of this um, Luke 20 verse 34. Luke 20, verse 34. So these guys aren't dead. I mean, these these people, they're alive. He's the God of the living. And He's going to bring them back in resurrection. Luke 20, verse 34. And Jesus said unto them, answering, sorry, "And, and Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels. They don't die. They have what? Immortality. Okay? So, and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. So when they're raised, they come up with immortality in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't understand any of that because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now what's interesting here is when he resurrects these Old Testament saints, look at how they're resurrected. They're resurrected into what? Immortality. They're given a body to function. They're giving an earthly body that's never going to go away. So, when you come back to Matthew 22, there's a lot going on in these passages. People get hung up on the issue of marrying and marriage and all this stuff, and it's tomfoolery, okay? When that little flock goes into the kingdom, that little flock is a set number. They're, they're set. Just like you and I, when we go into the heavenly places, we are a set number. The Gentiles out there that convert and become part of the kingdom, they continue to have and pro, and fill up the earth. But God's, they are a set number. That's why those numbers in Acts, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 120, all of those numbers are there for a reason because, and in, in, in Acts seven, it's a great mul- or act six, it's a great multitude. So it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's, it becomes a set number, uh, that 144,000 idea. I'm not going to say the number is 144,000, but that set number there. So when he sits, and see, everybody gets honed in on, is, are they marrying or not marrying? Well, that's not the point. The point is, is what they're going to be like? Who, the angels of God in heaven, and the angels and the angels don't marry; they don't have, keep having kids because they don't what. They don't usually die, it, and actually, the only ones that are going to die, if you, death is the word you're looking for, are those fallen angels when they're cast over into the lake of fire. Ultimately, you follow that? I, okay, this stuff gets. You get in the weeds real quick when you're not paying attention to what it how did he answer you did not err knowing the scriptures verse 31 but as touching the resurrection of the dead have ye not read that that which was spoken unto you by god saying that's a great verse on inspiration and preservation of your bible that verse tells you that when the Lord Jesus Christ read His Bible, and when those people there read their Bible, they were reading what God said to them. And any time you have a problem or run up against a problem with the authority of the Word of God, this verse right here is a great verse to have and to rest your faith in. Because the Lord Jesus Christ looked at that copy that He had in the temple and said, Have you never read what God said? And pointed right to that copy that he had sitting up there on the lectern that he was using in his teaching. So what you read in the book is that which was spoken unto you by God. That's inspiration. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's that's what's in the book. But also, that's inspiration. But preservation is because because he had, what did he have? What did the Lord have? He had a copy. He didn't have the originals. He had a copy. They had copies. So when you ever hear the Lord said, have you not read what God said? That's a verse to kind of keep in the back of your mind about the issue of inspiration and Preservation. Have you not read what's written? What was what is written down that was spoken to you by God? Now watch verse thirty-three. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Well, verse twenty-two, when they heard these words, they marvelled and left him and went their way. Now the multitude hear it, and then what are they? He's just he's just laying them out because they're coming with a question to trick him, and he's giving them. A biblical, a doctrinally sound answer. And you know what? No. By the way, you'll notice no one's arguing with him. Yeah, but what about... No. Okay? Us dumb Gentiles, we're the only ones that do that. Yeah, but... They don't do that. They ask their question, he lays them down. Every time he answers them back, everybody goes, wow. Astonished. Marveled. And off they go. All right, verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Isn't that interesting? He put them to what? Silence. I could imagine the pre-meeting, everybody's, I'm going to get him. I'm going to show him what's up, you know. I got a question. And we'll ask him about this angel thing and resurrection. We'll nail him on that one. He can't have an answer. He's just another guy. He, he's just from that backwater little city called Nazareth, and he doesn't know anything. And you know what? He put them to silence. So the Pharisees, then, verse 35, One of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? Again, what you're going to see here is all that little, (laughs) all that pious uh, uh, philosophical reasoning that those religious leaders had been, are doing. Jesus said unto him, verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now that's a tremendous issue there you have to understand what's going on here it's a great passage paul tells us in romans 319 that the law was designed to do what make you guilty shut you up and make the whole world guilty okay verse 37 thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart with all thy soul and with all thy mind so the question is, is, do you love the Lord? That's what he's saying. You, can, you want to ask me what the greatest commandment is? By the way, notice he only deals with a couple of them. He doesn't deal with all ten. Just the beginning and, and kind of half <laughs> the top ones here. When he does this, there's something involved here going on. Come over to Mark chapter 12 that's a that's a that that you need to see mark chapter 12 because his response isn't one of do you love me or not because he knows they don't they're trying to trick him they're trying to get him it it isn't one of him saying uh, you know just by the way do these guys really love their neighbor i don't think so you know it's an interesting thing when he talks there about loving their neighbor, and yet they go into the land of Canaan and they kill everybody. So what people say is, see, you're supposed to love your neighbor, so you can't go to, go to war type of thing. You can't go, and yet God says you go in there and kill them, kill them all, destroy. See, the love thy neighbor is Jew to Jew, not Jew to everybody else, See? Yeah, we're going to go, my neighbor, my, my Jewish brother right here. That's what he's going to go for. Anyway, I get ahead of myself. Mark 12. Note, I, There's just something here I want you to see. Mark 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And this, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So, all the other commandments are just extensions of these two. Now, verse 29 and verse 30 are a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 6. Verse 31 is a quote out of Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, when he is asked about the commandments and what commandment do you, you know, is number one. He's being, he, he, he's not being talked about, he's not being asked about the ten. He doesn't quote the ten commandments. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He does that because the guy who comes and asks him a question has an, has a, an agenda in the question he asks. And his question is designed to draw attention to the importance of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, God, through Moses, says to that nation, what nation is so great and has God so near as this nation? And then he talks about how God gave them the law and the statutes and the commandments. See? And how God dwells with that special nation. No other nation on the face of the earth has God dwell in their midst. So the guy, when he asked, back here in Matthew 22, Mark 12, which one, really what he's asking is, is which one of our commandments is the greatest? And Christ answers with a specific set of instructions to Israel as a nation. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6. He doesn't just answer with Exodus 20. He answers with Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he answers, the, by the way, the idea of loving their God is not given just to the individual. It's given to the nation. And when he says, love your neighbor, he's talking about one Jew loving another Jew. That's Leviticus 19. He's not talking about loving the guy down the street that's a Gentile. They weren't to do that. Okay, follow that? So what you have here is you have a guy that's trying to trick him, trip him up. Ask a question with a kind of a hidden... Read between the lines if you... He's a lawyer. <laughs> he knows the law. He's arguing the law. And he comes in and he says, Hey, look, you're the love thy neighbor. <laughs> you're the love the Lord thy God. The law says... You know what the law says? Love me. <coughs> it's a command. Hear, O Israel, do you love me? It's a command for you to love your neighbor. Love thy neighbor. It's a command... If you don't do it, what's going to happen? You're going to have trouble. You're going to have problems. It's the law, the if and then, the, the motivation here. The law says, love me. It demands, it commands, it requires you to love. And yet, you know, you, never, you don't have the capacity to do that. You know, my neighbor, him, us and him, and two other houses on the street are the original owners from 1998, okay? And he was out pulling his weeds. And you know what? He didn't pull my weeds. So he does he love me? Why doesn't he love thy And he's a good Catholic man. Does he love me? Well, oh, he didn't pull my weeds. So what's going to happen? Tomorrow when I pull my weeds, guess what? I ain't pulling his weeds, you know. Actually, I do because usually he's not home most of the time and I'm there and I just do it. But the thing, and and he says thank you. He appreciates it, but being neighborly, you know. But the thing is, is what the law says is you don't you need to understand you don't have the capacity to love God. You don't have the capacity to love your neighbor. When you compare that with grace motivation, look over at 2 corinthians 5 see when you compare it with that's it's when you compare it with the way grace works that's completely the other way the law says do do you, you do it you have to do it you you grace second uh, corinthians 5, 14, for the love of christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Notice here, in under today, what constrains us. Isn't my love for you, it's what? It's the love of Christ that motivates me. You know, it's under grace what motivates us and what pushes us and what moves us is is, is his, his love for me, not my love for him, because my love for him wanes, you know. I woke up the other morning going, I ain't doing this no more. I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to go drive a big rig and just see the country, you know. <laughs> Uncle. And that it comes, it comes that way, you know. And it just happens, and it happens for you, it happens for me, and grace comes along and says, "Let God. you know what God says, the love of Christ? Let me show you how much I value and esteem you. Look to Calvary. And if you ever doubt the love of Christ or God's love for you, just remember Calvary. Because at Calvary, that's where he showed how much he values and esteems you. Grace says, look at how much I loved you. The law says, you love me. Come back to Matthew 22. Under grace, God says, I love you. Look at how much I loved you. The law says, you better love me. Two different systems. By the way, they're both perfect systems. They both have been designed by and given to us by God. They're both in the Bible. We just don't live under the law system today. The demand today is not love the Lord thy God, love your neighbor. The demand today is look at how much I love you, how God loves you. And that's a key thing here. Because what gets thrown at us today is the love thy neighbor mess. And they come back in here and they start pulling these verses and they're like, you don't, you know, you don't love me and boo-hoo-hoo-hoo and all this whoop de doo stuff. And they use these verses. Now, should you care for one another and take care of each other? Yes. But that that's charity and that comes from a different place of just coming over here and loving on somebody and hugging on them and, you know, Listening to their whatevers. They use, they say, See, it's the two greatest commandments, and all the law and the prophets hang on it. Yeah, that's what the verse says, but that has nothing to do with you and I. See? So now we come down to verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Right up, real quick. Who's the Messiah? Well, he's the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, and again, I'll remind you, the capital L O R D is Jehovah, right? Said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Okay. So they left. They didn't even try. But when you think, in verse 46, no man was able to answer him a word, and neither durst any man. From that day forth ask him any more questions. (laughs) They gave up. They cried uncle. But notice the question. If David called him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, that's a kind of a that's a question to make even Bible students go, hmm. Well, if David said, Messiah is Lord, Christ is Lord, and then another passage he says he is my offspring how do you explain that so the lord's looking at him a little light from the class anybody have any idea and no man was able to answer him and off he goes you know what they said forget it i think we have a committee meeting don't we we have a board meeting don't we we got to get going see you later (laughs) see you later jesus (laughs) you know I got to get home, and uh, uh, yeah, the wife's cooking the lamb up tonight. We got to get home, (laughs) you know. The fish are in the net, and we got to get home. No, yeah, (laughs) yeah. The question demonstrates who the Lord Jesus Christ was, and the and the issue of the whole issue of Israel is if they answer him correctly, then they have to acknowledge who he is, and they don't want to do that. Now, the question then is, is can you guys here answer that question? Well, it's simple. Christ, the Messiah, was David's son in that he is David's descendant. He was born of the seed of David. Luke 1, Romans 1, Matthew 1, all the genealogies. But he was also David's Lord. Because... He's Jehovah. He was what? God. He's God manifest in the flesh. Come over with me to Jeremiah 23. Again, just a little Bible study, a little remembering what you've studied already, Jeremiah 23. The reason that they didn't want to answer that question was because they knew they'd have to admit who Christ really was. They knew who he was. They just didn't want to give him... The credit, the benefit. Jeremiah twenty-three, verse number five. Jeremiah twenty-three, five. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the world. A righteous br- David, a righteous branch. That's an offspring, someone coming after David. Verse six. In his days, Judah sh- shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And again, the capital L-O-R-D, that's Jehovah. He says, I'm going to raise up unto David a righteous branch. He's going to be a descendant. He's going to be king. He's going to execute judgment and justice in the earth. He will be God Almighty. That's who he's going to be. So So David says... He's my descendant, he's my son, but he is also Jehovah. David had it, David understood. Now come back there to Matthew 23, verse 46, because here, the end of this, no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And literally, the Lord doesn't get questioned again until he goes before Pilate, and they go in before the judgment, uh, the, the chief priest and so forth. So where is he going? To the cross. And there's an interesting thing here about this issue, about them not asking him any more questions. They've been asking him questions. And the fact is, is that, come back to Psalms. Let's just do this quickly here. Psalms 51. Psalms 51. See David here, just briefly. Psalms 51. And it gets back to where we started about the issue of man judging God. Okay? And questioning God. And then him questioning man. Psalms 51, verse number 4. Now this is quoted in Romans 3, verse 4. So we'll go over there in just a minute. Psalms 51, 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil and thy sight. So David is confessing his sins with Bathsheba. And he says that, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou speakest judges he says i'm confessing my sin so that when you judge when you speak you can be clear that i'm the guilty one and you god you are right david is saying i'm guilty you're right that's what david is saying god is going to judge now come over to romans 3 if you remember our roman study here Romans 3, verse number 4. When Paul quotes this passage, he says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Paul quotes it in Romans, but he kind of twists it a little bit around because men are going to challenge God's judgment. And that is what David is saying. So Paul is clarifying what David is saying. David is saying, I'm confessing my sin so that when you judge me and people argue with you about it, because what are they going to say? You let that dirty, rotten rascal David off the hook. And you're not going to let me off the hook? How dare you? And you call yourself a righteous, holy God? When they say that, David's saying in Psalms 51, and what Paul's saying is, I want it clear I was the wrong and you were right in what you did, God. I want this clear that you were right and I'm wrong. You see both kind of, the, see the issue there. So when you come back, are you in Romans 3 still? Look at verse 19. They go, Matthew 22 over there, they go down there, they have no answer. Romans 3.19 is the the issue. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So when you come back to Matthew 22, you know what? They walked away because they were what? Guilty. They knew it. They knew that they had lost. They knew that they couldn't do anything they knew that there just was no way because to answer the question was to cave and who he was. Now, chapter 23. We'll start there next time because the hour's up. But this now is where Christ is going to pronounce the woes on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the leadership. And it is one of the most vilifying things passages in the word as far as religion is concerned but yet at the same time there's some tremendous positive truths there for us as we study down through it so we'll uh, work our way down through chapter 23 we'll start next time okay? but just see what's going on he, uh, he's got the religious leaders he, he is goading them He is poking them. He's provoking them to anger, to wrath, so that they will go and do what he needs them to do, and that is killing, crucifying. And he is using that apostate nation once once again to accomplish what he, what the word of God, what he needs to be accomplished. So he's reaching over there and he's sticking them. And he's sticking them, and he's going to stick them again in 23, when he in chapter 23, when he gives them these woes, and he's gonna he gonna turn the fire up underneath them, and uh, as uh, the uh, mo- guy in the movie said, it's like a chicken on a stage with the with a hot plate underneath it turned up, and they're gonna start dancing. And uh, that's literally what's going to happen. But you got to see the picture here. Israel, they're apostate. They're gone. And there sits the guy that can give them the answer. They've rejected him. They've ignored him. Now they're picking a fight. with. They want to kill him. It's what they want to do. But they can't because it's, it's not justifiable. It's murder. So they got to, and he's just going, okay, here, I'll give you some. Okay? All right, dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the look into the precursor to Calvary and what was going on with the nation. Give you the praise and the honor for it. In your name we pray. Amen.